Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So... Welcome to Season 2 of my Research in Action mini-series, where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest and the implications for teachers in the classroom. And I try my very best not to come across completely out of my depth. Episode 7 features Camilla Gilmore, and I tell you what, it is a cracker. Camilla completed her undergraduate and graduate studies at Nottingham, Reading and Oxford. Following this, she worked as a postdoc in the psychology department at Harvard University and was then a research fellow in the Learning Sciences Research Institute at Nottingham for five years. She moved to the Mathematical Education Centre at Loughborough in 2011. Now, Camilla is one of the co-directors of the new Centre for Mathematical Cognition. She is an expert on mathematical cognition in adults and children, mathematical learning difficulties and dyscalculia, and conceptual and procedural understanding of mathematics. Now, what's dead interesting is when Colin emailed me um, all the guest info and stuff, uh, he said the following, and this is a direct quote from Colin Foster. Camilla knows more about executive functions than anyone else I know, so it will be really good to get her to go into some detail on that. And I'll tell you what, it's possibly true that I know as little about executive uh, functions than anyone anybody knows, so I was fascinated to find out more, and that is exactly what we did. So without further ado, let's get cracking. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so we start the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Um, so I'm going to really disappoint you here, I'm afraid, Craig, because I know that lots of your um, guests have really clever mathematical reasons <laughs> for their numbers. And the truth is, I don't have a favourite number and I don't have a clever mathematical reason for choosing one. 
Um, but I thought I'd go for three because I have three kids. So my life runs in threes, definitely. <laughs> and and also I think there's something um, when children are developing and learning and growing up and learning about numbers and starting to get these ideas of counting and so on. A lot of stuff happens when they're about three years old and they get really tied into this idea of I'm three and how important it is to be three. And, you know, I'm bigger than you because you're only two, but I'm not yet as big as you because you're four. And it just seems like a really important like point in children's development. So I'll go with that. That's a really good choice. My little boy's two at the moment, so I'll be looking. I mean, we've got terrible twos, but then I've heard yeah. about the terrible threes as well. So we'll, we'll see what happens uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all there fun. with that one. Good one. Um, okay, so number two, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Yeah, so uh, the part of maths that I use most of now is obviously statistics um, as a researcher. But I think the thing that really stuck with me from learning maths at school or the experience of learning it at school was probably um, doing calculus in further maths at A-level. And the reason it stuck with me is um, when I started, it was just this totally bizarre foreign language. None of it made any sense. I couldn't get to grips with it. I couldn't see the point in it. I couldn't work out what we were supposed to do or why. Um, and it came as a real shock because I think probably um, it might be a common experience, but I'd found maths quite easy up until GCSE. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do the double maths A level. And then I got hit with this and it just made no sense. And it was sort of the first time I'd really, really had to struggle with something mm -hmm. that just was so abstract and so yes. meaningless. Um, and yet over the over the, the, the A-level course, I got to grips with it. I came to understand it. And by the end, I could appreciate um, the sort of the sense of it and the beauty of it and how it all made it sort of fitted together. Um, and so that was really satisfying to go from that experience and really that 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 point where you don't even know where to start because the whole thing just is so opaque and actually getting to a point where it all kind of seems to fit together. Um, I have to say, I haven't done it for 25 years, so I'm probably back to the point of it all being completely <laughs> opaque again, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I think I have to say calculus. That's a great answer. Fantastic. And final one, uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in educational research? Um, so I think the... The part of my job that I enjoy most that is probably kind of transferable is writing. Um, and that's something that when I started out as an academic, really didn't enjoy and really found difficult. And I know a lot of PhD students really mm. struggle with the writing um, and you have to really work at it. And now it's it's the part that I enjoy the most and um, would love to have more time to do. So I guess if I was choosing an alternative career now, I'd probably say some form of writing, um, like kind of non-fiction stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a creative, imaginative person to do fiction, but you know, I like the process of taking something complicated and thinking about how you can make it as simple as possible for a reader, and and sort of, I have this kind of idea when I'm writing this this image that I'm kind of leading the reader through like through a wood or something and you're trying mm. to you're sort of like taking them by the hand and and showing them where the flow of the logic is going and um and that it's it's really your job as a writer um to do all the work the more work you do as a writer then the less work that the reader has to do in in kind of making the connections and seeing the links and and I kind of enjoy yeah, just really imagining the reader as, as I'm writing something and how I can make it as clear as possible for them. 
It's really interesting you say that. Uh, Beth uh, Woolacott, when mm. she was on Series 1, she spoke about her PhD and how the writing was one of the, the biggest challenges. Yeah, and I think it's something that when you're thinking about doing a PhD, it's almost the last thing you think about. You, of course, you think you know you've got to write a big load, mm. load of stuff, but you're more focused on the research and perhaps the, the, the oral bit at the end. But the writing's such a significant part. And, and your colleague, Lara, as well, who I interviewed mm. as part of this Series 2, one of her big three was a book specifically about improving writing, yeah. about style and stuff. So it's, oh, it's a key yeah. part of being a researcher, isn't it? It really is. It really is. But and people shouldn't worry, though, because you absolutely can learn it. You know, I couldn't write to start with. And yes. you just have to. I actually learned it in a very sort of explicit fashion. You learn about more about grammar and strength sentence structure and paragraph structure and the structure of the whole article and so on. And it is just something that, um, it you know, like many things in life, we might think it comes naturally to people and maybe to a few people it does. But that doesn't mean you can't learn it yes. by putting the effort in, putting the practice in and, and getting better. Do you, do you find yourself reading quite critically now when you read other stuff just because you know about what good writing is the more um, you've spent thinking about it? I wouldn't say I read it critically and, you know, I'm not kind of trying to I'm not I'm not thinking that I'm, I'm necessarily a better writer than anything else I read but I do sometimes see when I'm working when I'm I, you know when I'm having to work harder to understand if I read an article yes. and I'm having to work really hard to understand it and sometimes I'll sort of sit back and think well, why is this so hard mm. and you can mm. identify that oh they've you know they've they've used two terms interchangeably to mean the same thing and it's not clear whether they actually mean the same thing or something different or you know, they're, they're um, introducing things, you know, if you have like three points that you're frequently making, always make them in the same order, you know, don't yes. keep switching around because then yes. your reader can understand, oh, this is the same point, number one, and so on. So, you, you know, and I think that is actually quite a useful thing for students to do to improve writing is that, you know, read papers, if you get to the end of it, and you found it really nice to read, stop and like, See if you can unpick why. Yes. And if you got to the end of it and found it really hard, then also unpick why that was so hard and what you can take away from that. That's interesting. Fantastic. Um, well, I wonder if you can just take us through your uh, career, Camilla, if that's okay, from uh, where it all started for you to where you are today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, um, I did a degree in psychology, an uh, undergraduate and then master's degree in psychology. And I was really drawn to the kind of developmental psychology side of things. So looking at how children develop, what do we know about the influences on their development, their um, growth and so on. Um, but it really struck me during those courses that, you know, we have a lot of, we know a lot about language or at the time, so sometime ago, we, we knew a lot about language development and about reading development. And um, these were things that were very prominent in the um, psychology undergraduate. Um, but nobody ever talked about number understanding or mathematical mm. understanding. It just it wasn't really a, a topic at all that that came up. Um, and and I was I was curious as to why that was. I, I you know I really was interested in that side of things. So during my masters, I um, I sought out. There wasn't any members of staff. I was doing this at Reading, and the, there wasn't any members of staff in psychology who did any maths research. But um, I sought out the, the next closest thing, which um, Emily Farron had just joined there as a lecturer. And she's an expert, uh, Professor Emily Farron now at um, Surrey. She's an expert in so, uh, spatial cognition, so spatial skills and spatial reasoning. Um, 
And I thought, oh, you know, spatial skills and maths is, you know, obviously sort of overlap there. So I did my dissertation with her and we looked at um, children's counting skills and how spatial skills are involved in that. Um, and that really got me interested in it. So um, I loved the research. I decided I wanted to do a PhD. And there weren't many people in the UK at that time doing research from a psychology perspective on, on maths development and maths learning. Um, so obviously there's been the field of maths education all this time, but it, it hadn't really got into kind of psychology and cognition. Uh, so I, I went to do my PhD um, with Peter Bryant, who was one of the few people um, at Oxford who was doing this kind of research. And, you know, Peter's uh, done a lot over the, um, over the decades on uh, children's mathematical understanding. Um, and so I went to Oxford, did my PhD, and I was looking at um, children's understanding of arithmetic, um, particularly the relationship between addition and subtraction. So could children understand that addition and subtraction were inverse relationships? And how did this, this relate to different kinds of skills? Um, and then, I, you know, my career's definitely not been planned out. I sort of fell from one thing to another and kind of just took all the opportunities that came along. Um, and I, I enjoyed doing my PhD, so I thought I'd like to stay in research for a bit longer. Um, and I went... Having done that research, looking at kind of something that's quite familiar to sort of school type maths, so something that's recognisably maths, I guess, mm. um, I wanted to um, find out a bit more about the kind of underpinnings, the sort of lower level processing that's all involved in, in maths. Um, and so I, I had the chance to go and do a postdoc with Liz Spelke at Harvard University. So I spent a year in the States doing that. And that was looking very much more at kind of low level processing. So how do we make kind of numerical type judgments about collections of objects? So, you know, if you can look at uh, two sets of items and work out which one has has more. And then I, I, I think since then, I've just been interested in kind of bringing together these kind of lower level processing and kind of um, basic um, underpinning skills and how that relates to more of the school level, things that recognisably maths as the things that children might do in school. Um, so after my postdoc, I then went to Nottingham and spent five years there as a research fellow, doing carrying on with this kind of research. Um, and then 10 years ago, moved to Loughborough to um, become a researcher here, where I've been at Loughborough now for since then. And I think What's really struck me is from from that point when I was an undergraduate and there wasn't really a field, there wasn't a field of mathematical cognition research. You didn't see numbers and maths coming up in this mm. kind of, um, you know, if you picked up a developmental psychology textbook, there would have been nothing about numbers and maths in there. And, and there's just been this enormous growth in this kind of new field of mathematical cognition, which is, you know, it's it's not maths education. It's distinct from maths education, but it's obviously very closely related and, and relevant. But it's it's all about how children learn. What are the what are the kind of um, cognitive skills and the non cognitive skills that um, we use when we're learning about numbers and maths and that have this really important role to play. Um, and this field has just exploded in the past 20 years. So there's now um, a Mathematical Cognition and Learning Society. There are specific conferences on it. There's textbooks and so on. Um, and it's been just really enjoyable to be a part of that growth. And I think, you know, at Loughborough, we've particularly um, seen that. So when I, 
went to Loughborough 10 years ago, there was Matthew Ingalls and me and Ian Jones who were doing this kind of um, research. And now we've grown and grown. And last year we, we launched this Centre for Mathematical Cognition and we now have kind of 30 probably around um, academic staff and PhD students doing this research. And, they, you know, that's been just a, an amazing transformation. That's and, you know, been really fun. Why, why do you think it's, it's taken so long for it to, to come to the forefront? Why, why has kind of maths been ignored in this space for so long? Um, so I think, I think there's a number of reasons. So when... When I started off my PhD, there was definitely a feeling that like language and reading were suitable topics to be looked at in a psychology context. Mm. But maths, maths was just sort of an educational thing and the education researchers would look at that. So, you know, I, I had such a difficulty at the beginning getting papers published in general kind of psychology journals. So they'd always get rejected and sent back and go, oh, no, this is a bit more specialist. This is a bit more applied. You need to go to a different kind of journal with it. Whereas now those journals really see mathematical cognition as a, as a core kind of area of research. So I think partly it's, it's that change in perspective. I think I do wonder as well whether there's a slight sort of uh, crossover effect from looking at reading and looking at how the kinds of cognitive reading research that happened in the 80s and 90s has completely changed the way we think about how children learn to read and has changed the approaches you know the focus on phonics and things like that that all came from original cognitive research that time ago and perhaps seeing that happening in the field of reasoning of reading gives us a stronger argument that actually we should be doing that for maths as well. You know, we should be under, you know, it's beneficial to understand yes. more about these basic cognitive underpinnings and, and that that potentially has an impact for education. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like uh, you're at the right place and at the right time as well to be really delving in uh, more to this fascinating mm -hmm. area. Um, before we delve into your research uh, in particular, Camilla, I always like to ask people at this stage for a favourite failure. So a moment perhaps in your research career or your professional life that didn't go according to plan and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, well, when I when I saw this question, there was, there was only one that I could use. There's something that stuck with me so much and influenced me hugely, actually. Um, and it happened at, towards the end of my PhD. Um, so as, as I mentioned, my, my PhD was about children's understanding of the link between addition and subtraction. And I did some, um, some studies looking at this and looking at how children's understanding of this relationship um, relates to uh, how well they're able to sort of carry out the procedures of addition and subtraction. So, you know, is it the case that if children can do the procedures, they also understand this relationship or, or yes. not? And what I found across a, a few different studies was that for most children, these two sort of separate aspects seem to um, be kind of in line with each other. But I, I found, I consistently found a group of children who had really good understanding of the relationship between addition and subtraction. So they, they got this idea that they were inverse relationship. There was an inverse relationship between them. And yet they really struggled with the procedures themselves. Mm. So they, they, could, they, they found it very difficult to accurately carry out addition and subtraction as separate procedures, but they could see the relationship between them. So 
I thought this was quite interesting. It, yes. this, you know, this example of perhaps somewhere where conceptual understanding is is more advanced than children's procedural mm. skill. And, you know, there's so much interest in how those two um, develop. So I, I had this finding, which um, I thought, you know, and I presented it at a few kind of small psychology meetings and um, it had gone down really well and <laughs> we'd generated lots of interesting discussion. So I thought, right, I'm going to go and present this um, somewhere a little bit different and somewhere a bit more educational. Um, and so I, I went and presented it at a meeting of um, BSRLM. I don't know if you know that. No. The, the British Society for Research and Learning Mathematics. So it's an, a really nice society and they hold these term, once a term, um, these research meetings. And it's education researchers and, and sometimes uh, and also teachers or anyone interested in, in research in this area. So I went down, I think it was at Southampton. I can remember driving down there. It's real, this day is, is fixed in my, uh, in my memory. Um, and I went and gave the presentation and I presented it how I presented it at, at these other conferences. Um, and it was a disaster. It went down <laughs> terribly. I could tell. I'm getting like hot and embarrassed here now remembering <laughs> this because it was so awful. I like I can picture the room I was in and you know you could you could see like people's body language, they were getting really antagonistic, they didn't like it, they didn't like what I was saying, they didn't like, you know, and at the end in the questions, no one had any questions, and it was just obviously a disaster. Um and I didn't know why. I couldn't I couldn't work out why it was so completely different. Um and then some I don't know who it was, some kind soul came up to me afterwards in the lunch queue and explained to me and, and, and talked to me about, you know, why what the audience heard might have been different from what I was trying to say. And it all came down to a word that I'd used. So I described these different groups as being high conceptual ability, high procedural ability, low conceptual ability, low procedural ability. And it was this use of the word ability. Mm. So in a psychology context, ability is often used and will be kind of taken as a shortcut for um, performance on a task yes. at a particular moment in time. It's a completely neutral term. It doesn't yes. have anything more, no more sort of connotations than that. Um, but obviously to this education audience, it had a completely different meaning. And they thought that I was saying something you know, making value judgments about these children, yes. that I was saying something about that their what they could do was fixed and unchangeable. You know, mm. it came with all this baggage and none of it was what I meant. And it really, um, it really emphasized to me that it doesn't matter what you think you're saying, it's what your audience hears yes. that really, really matters. And I hadn't, and they thought I was saying something that wasn't what I was saying, all because of my use of this, this word ability that so it, you know it, it's really really important learning experience about you've got to try and understand what your audience hears not what you're saying because they're not that, necessarily the same that is fascinating it's fascinating for two, for two reasons actually one i had a, a slightly similar thing where my colleague who I work with at Diagnostic Questions, Simon, his, he's not from a teaching background or an educational background at all. He's like a statistics whiz. Mm -hmm. And we were measuring the relationship between confidence and achievement level. So yeah. um, how confident you are in an answer, what's the correlation between how likely you are to be right? And also 
testing the hypercorrection effect. So if you make a high confidence error, are you more likely to correct it in the future mm-hmm. than if you made a low confidence error? Mm-hmm. So we, we presented this at Research Ed National a few years ago. And I saw it as a measure of accurate the relationship between accuracy and confidence, whereas he labeled it as ability and confidence. Yeah, so these graphs appeared yeah, yeah. and it was ability level versus confidence. And it was all kicking off. You could yeah, tell because, yeah. as you say, that ability is such a loaded term mm-hmm. um, in, in education. And it only seems to be in education that it has this very specific meaning. And as you say, people start thinking fixed mindset, fixed ability and all this kind mm-hmm, of thing. So mm-hmm. that, that's one thing that, that um, sprung to mind from that. But also the more general point is that's the art of teaching isn't it to, to, to realize and it took me many years to realize this it doesn't matter how good my explanation is if the kids interpret it as something mm-hmm. else I'm waste I'm wasting my time and unless yeah. we have a way of figuring out what the audience interpretation is of what we're saying we're really struggling it's uh yeah it's a big big challenge that yeah. Camilla, isn't it and I think this this is why you know this is why so much of this communication between research and practice is is difficult and, and you know any diff two communities really mm. not, not just this because it's very hard when you're within a, a, a particular community to know how um how the words that you're using have very sort of specific meanings and you know we all know don't use jargon all this kind of stuff yes. you know that that's but the trouble is that we don't realize when we're using jargon yeah that's the problem yeah. and it, i think it's really really hard and i, I see this you know there's a number of other words that I see that I think have slightly different meanings in research and practice or in psychology research and education research and so on and you know as somebody who's writing or or presenting you can try your best to understand how the words you say will be interpreted Mm. but actually you can't always do that you know I think researchers do and need to try and understand you know the more obvious ones where like I think ability is one that's you know you don't have to spend long reading education research yes. blogs or educa- you know, practice blogs and things to pick up on that. But, you know, there's probably lots of other words that we use that we don't realise are jargon. Well, they're not even jargon because that's, you know, it's just that they have different connotations and different yes. communities. It works the other way around as well. Like I always, I always use significant. I just chuck that in willy nearly significant. And Simon always gets mad at me about that because when I say it had a significant impact, he's like, well, what what do you mean by that? that And so on. So it's, yeah, these words are interesting. One one that I see that I think um, is really interesting is intervention. So psychology researchers particularly will use intervention to to mean a type of sort of research design often. Okay. So, you know, um, an RCT, you know, a randomized control t- trial, will often be described as an intervention trial because mm. you are changing something for one group and then you're comparing the effect of uh. this. And um, and this is an intervention um, study is a way of um, identifying if something, two things are causally related. You know, it's our technique to understand whether a correlation is in fact a causal relationship. But of course, intervention has a kind of different meaning in in education where Mm. you're actually doing something specifically because you think a student needs particular extra help or whatever. And and I've seen this. I've seen um, uh, people, researchers talk about intervention trials. And we we did a review of intervention studies um, on uh, early maths a couple of years ago. And then we started talking about this and then we had to keep saying, oh, we don't mean that kind of intervention because we could see teachers looking at it and saying, but I don't see why this would be a good intervention. 
and it was like oh no you know it's not something specific to to sort of children who need extra help it's just a way of looking at, at causal relationships it's, it's really interesting. Um, Doug Lamov, uh, the author of Teach Like mm-hmm. a Champion, he, he has a really good, he makes the point that a shared vocabulary is really important, both between colleagues and also teachers and students. Yeah. And what he does for his techniques in Teach Like a Champion 2.0, he gives them all names which kind of try to get around this. So he, he says things like cold call or slant, mm-hmm. and it's stuff that will have a, it's, it's like introducing a new term so we can attach this meaning yeah. to it as opposed to using terms that yeah. will, will mean other things, which can then people have different interpretations yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such an important thing, this, this notion of a shared vocabulary yeah. between the communicator and the audience, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Or just defining the way that you'll use yes. it. You know, say that in this paper, I'm going to yeah. use this term to mean this. And, you know, then now we can progress and just use the term and we know what we're, we're talking about here. That's brilliant. That's a brilliant favorite failure that came out. I like that one. That's, uh, that's, yeah. It still makes me feel terrible. I just, I just wish I could get all those people back and say, no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. What you thought I was saying, I didn't mean that. Well, maybe some of them will be listening to this conversation. So fingers crossed. Uh, right. Well, let's dive into your chosen area of research. What are we going to be talking about today, Camilla? So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about executive function skills and how they are um, relate to maths learning and maths achievement. Because I know that um, working memory is something that uh, I think a lot of people might be familiar with and there's a lot of discussion about. But executive function skills are this broader set of um, cognitive skills and that research has been doing quite a lot to look at um, how they're involved and that might be something a little bit um, different. Yeah, now you're going to have to help me out here, right? So I struggle enough with working memory, but executive function. Talk to me as if I'm a four-year-old, Camilla. Yeah. What do we mean by executive function? So executive function skills, they're sometimes referred to as cognitive control, which I think gives a good a good way of thinking about it. So they're this set of skills that we use to control our attention and our actions and our behaviour. So we're using our... Um, executive function skills all the time so you're right now you're not interrupting me you're stopping yourself from speaking and hopefully paying attention um, and so you're you, we're using these skills all the time um, and one of the ways that I think is helpful to think about it is um, is to think about toddlers so toddlers have very very immature executive function skills like they don't really have them and so if you think about all the things that toddlers do they don't remember anything you say to them if you tell them not to touch something, a second later they're touching it. Um, but they're they're really easily distractible. So you know, shiny thing over here if you're trying to get <laughs> them to stop doing what they're doing. Um, and they might uh, be really hard, difficult to extract from a certain situation. So sometimes they're very distractible, but other times they're totally focused on the truck, and nothing is going to get the truck away from me. And I think that's a way, you know, if you think about the absence of executive function skills looking like that, then that gives us an idea about where we use them and, and how and how they control uh, are, are necessary for sort of everything we do. Um, so we there's lots of different models of executive function skills. And um, uh, I think one of the ones that's quite commonly referred to that's perhaps a helpful way of thinking about it um, splits them up into three different sets of skills. So we have working memory, which people might be familiar with, which is um, the skills that we need to hold information in mind and manipulate it or hold information in the face of distractions. Um, 
And so the other two skills that are involved are inhibition or inhibitory control, it's sometimes um, referred to. And this is the skill that we use um, when we ignore distractions or um, uh, resist an impulse to respond in a certain way. So controlling our impulses and focusing our, our attention on certain things and um, not being distracted by other aspects. And then the third one is uh, uh, sometimes referred to as cognitive flexibility or shifting, switching sometimes. Um, and this is the ability to, I try not to use the said ability. This is the <laughs> skill that we use when we switch our attention between different tasks um, or we try and think about different aspects of a certain situation. So looking at something from different perspectives or switching attention between um, different tasks. Wow. Okay. Now there's a load to get into here, but I'll tell you one thing that always fascinates me here, Camilla, and I, I never thought about this until I interviewed your colleagues in season one of, mm -hmm. of, of this series of podcasts. And that is how on earth you're measuring these kind of things. So we speak about working memory mm -hmm. as, you know, this limited capacity. We can only hold so much uh, in any one go and we get this cognitive overload and all mm -hmm. this kind of thing. I've sort of got my head around how you could perhaps design some kind of tasks to, to measure how much students could be processing at any one go. But how do we measure these other, other two things? Yeah, so inhibition. I mean, it's very age dependent, as you'd imagine. So with young children, I mean, you know, Simon Says is an inhibition task. You know, do what I say when I say Simon Says, but don't yes. do it when I don't say Simon Says. <laughs> That's good. So yeah. there's kind of versions of that where um, you show children a picture of a moon or a sun. And when they see the moon, they have to say sun. And when they mm. see the sun, they have to say moon. So they're resisting <laughs> this impulse to... to do the do the instinctive and, and yes. actually stop and think about it and give the opposite result, uh, the opposite response. Um, and then uh, similarly with with older children or with adults, you can present information where they have to ignore um, a certain aspect of it and focus on the other. So um, a sort of more numerical one that we might use is a numerical Stroop task, where you present two um, digits on the screen. And they have to pick the one that is um, at the higher numerical. So if you've got nine and a four, they have to pick the nine, not the four. Um, but on the screen, the four is massive and the nine is little. Ah. So they have to resist or ignore this information about size and um, pick, pick the one that's the higher numerical. What's so, that one called, Camilla? Stroop. So yeah, so and that's called the numerical stroop. So a stroop task, people might be familiar with this idea where you show words in different colour inks. So you might ah. show the word blue in red ink, and you have to name the colour of the ink and yes. ignore the word. So that's the classic stroop task. Interesting. And then there's there's lots of variations on it um, that people use, and we sometimes use the numerical one. That's interesting. Okay, so that's how you would measure the inhibition. What about mm. the, the switching? Yeah, um, so kind of a couple of different ways. Um, so you might ask children to sort cards. So if you have some cards with uh, different coloured shapes on them, for example, and you might ask them, first of all, to sort them by colour. So put all the red ones in one pile and all the green ones in the other pile. Um, and then halfway through the task, you switch. So you say, now I want you to sort by shape and so now they have to start sorting putting all the triangles in one pile and the circles in another pile and it's this thing of like uh stopping 
focusing on one set of instructions yes. or task requirements and switch to something different. Um, and there's more complex versions of it that you can do where you have a you know a whole a sequence of things where the, the correct response depends on something. So there's one called the shape school where you have a whole load of shapes that are different colors and you have to name the shape um, unless it's wearing a hat and then you have to name its color. And you know, these <laughs> kinds of things where I can see I just like stopped there because <laughs> yeah, I couldn't remember yeah. what, the, what the switch rule was. Um, but where, where you've got this kind of thing. So that's one kind of task. Um, and then an alternative, which focuses a bit more on the thinking about different perspectives is um, there's one that's um, an animal sort. So you have a whole set of cards um, with pictures of animals on them. And um, some of the cards are, red, are blue and some of the cards are yellow and some of the cards um, have one animal on them and some have more and some have black borders and some don't and so on. And you ask um, uh, participants in the research just to sort the cards as many different ways as they can think of. So, you know, can they be really creative in the ways that they can come up with different groupings for these cards? And, you know, there's quite subtle things like some of them have rain in them and some of them don't and, and that kind of thing. So um, and you're actually just asking people to come up with as many different ways of looking at a situation as possible. Interesting. So let me just make sure I've got my head around this. Would it be true that those three things, the working memory, the inhibition and the switching, they all form the executive function or is that, is that overly Yeah, simplistic? so I mean, like with everything, it's um, different people have slightly different kind of theoretical models about how yep. these things fit together. But I think that's one, um, that, that's kind of a, a nice way of thinking about it that's probably at the level of detail that's useful for teachers without getting into any of the kind of um, more esoteric debates about model structure um, and I think one thing that's important about this is when we look at these three different um, executive function skills in young children and, and through sort of till like mid-primary school age often we find that really it's just like you can't distinguish between them so and what I mean by that is not that they're not separate skills but children's level of one Will be similar you know if they if they've got good working memory then they're most likely to have good inhibition and good mm. cognitive flexibility so in other words with young children we can think about executive functions as a kind of block thing um but then as we go through childhood and adolescence and into adulthood they do become more separable and it might be that you have strengths more in one than the other and that becomes more common and, and it's much more important to look at these separately as children develop um, just so we can complete the picture, what would be some of the ways that you'd measure working memory capacity? Uh, so working memory is often done with um, uh, sort of span tasks. And the important thing here is that you're not just holding information. So it's not just that kind of remembering a phone number thing. Mm. You've got to process it. So the way yes. this is often done is by asking participants to reverse it. So you might ask them to remember a sequence of digits, 4739, and then to repeat it in reverse order. Yes. 9374. That <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Yeah, so yeah. so that, there's those kind of digit, uh, those kinds of span tasks. And then the other one is when you're asking them to, to do some processing and to remember something and to kind of like update the list. So um, one that we use in our um, studies is like a sentence span task. So... Um, you give children, we do this children or adults, um, some sentences that are missing the final word. So 
uh, Freddie put on his, his um, I can't remember, uh, <laughs> it's, the word is gloves, I can't remember what the sentence is, but you have a sentence, so Freddie put on his, and the, the answer is gloves, it was raining so he took his umbrella, and then he avoided uh, stepping in the puddle, or something like that, although you wouldn't yeah. actually have them linked, and then the job is, they have to generate the word at each sentence, and yes. then at the end of a block, they have to repeat those words that they've generated in the correct order. So it's it's all about, it's not just about holding information, mm. but it's about holding information while you're doing something, while you're updating something, while you're manipulating that information or while you're processing something else. And that's the key thing about working memory. Got it. Got it. Right. So let me ask you a few questions about these. And forgive me if either these are silly questions or they're kind of missing the point and feel free to kind of steer me back onto the right path. But a question I often find myself asking whenever we start talking about things in young children and then as they develop as, as the children get older is, is, is it just kind of inherent in kids that they're going to have this, this working memory capacity, this ability to, to avoid inhibitions and this ability to switch? Or is it something that, that, that kids can improve? Right. So, I mean, there's huge development um, in executive function skills and it carries on for a long time. So it's not until sort of middle or late adolescence that our executive function skills are really developed to an adult level. And I think that's really important to remember. We're not just talking about things that young children might struggle with. You know, yes. through secondary school, children are still developing their executive function skills. Um, and they will develop at different rates and different you know, children. It's not a very predictable development. But we do know that things influence that development. So we know that um, environment has an impact. So children who have um, adversity in early childhood, this um, can be seen to have an impact on executive function development. Um, so it, you know, it's not fixed. It's not like you're born and we could predict exactly what your executive function skills are going to be like um, as, as an adult. So your, the way that you develop and the environment you're in will have an impact on that. Having said that, training these skills doesn't seem to be a simple thing. So, you know, there's been a lot of efforts on working memory training and yes. now more recently we're looking at inhibition training. Um, and it's not the case that these are, um, are incredibly um, malleable skills that are very easy to, to train. Um, and even in the cases where we do see some impact on, on improving working memory, for example, that doesn't seem to transfer to yes. educational outcomes. Yeah, that, that's been my limited reading of working memories, that you can train people to get good at remembering certain specific mm. things like orders of decks of cards and stuff with little memory yeah. tricks. But that then doesn't transfer yeah, that all absolutely. of a sudden you can do a really complex calculation much better. Yeah. It, would that be true of the inhibition? You can kind of quite domain specific people can get better at something but it doesn't transfer across yeah so there's been less um research well it's been different the kind of research looking at inhibition so there have been um some studies that have tried the kind of equivalent thing to the working memory training of, of doing some focused um inhibition training and actually you know some of these studies show that actually you don't even get the improvements in inhibition from the oh, training right. so let alone the transfer so it seems to be limited in a slightly different way than working memory um but there are different approaches that have been tried so some one thing that's been looked at is 
sort of early curricula. So this has particularly been the case in, in the US more than here. So there, there's a, um, a particular sort of kindergarten curriculum they've developed called um, the tools of the mind. And that's something that um, an attempt not to train inhibition or executive functions by kind of taking the child out of a situation and putting them on a computer and getting them to do training, but actually just thinking about how does our whole kind of approach to um, what we do in the classroom and how, you know, the activities that we do, that we, we've sort of got this idea of, of incorporating executive function skills and helping children to develop. And the evidence on that's quite mixed. So there are some studies that have found that the tools of the mind curriculum has led to an improvement in executive function skills and an improvement in um, academic, academic achievement. Other studies find improvement on executive function tasks, but no kind of um, transfer over to academic achievement. And I think some of the effects seem to be quite um, short lasting. But I, that's not, I don't want to sort of sound like I'm saying that it's not important to think about these things. And actually, you know, a lot of the way that we approach early years actually has a real emphasis on executive function skills. So, you know, a lot of our kind of play-based curricula um, and this, you know, helping children develop. It's often taught to, so in early years, we often see people talking about self-regulation. Mm. So self-regulation skills and executive function skills, they're kind of very overlapping and there's not a clean definition of, of one or the other. I think self-regulation skills tend to be um, thought of as being incorporating the more social and emotional aspects yeah. where executive function skills are kind of more sort of pure cognitive aspects but you know with those kinds of um, approaches that allow children to, to I guess it's not training it but it's giving children the opportunity to develop these skills by um, setting up situations where um they get some benefit from sort of exerting their inhibition, for example, you know, developing good sharing and all these kinds of things, you know, that really requires a child to use inhibition. I'm not going to grab that. Yes. I see that. I want that. I want to grab it, <laughs> but actually I'm going to stop because I know that if I wait and I, you know, I do it in a nice way, then I get to play with the toy and so on. Um, okay. So we think you mentioned before that if, if ch uh, children have experienced trauma early on, that this may kind mm -hmm. of reduce their executive function skills, but you are confident that there are some things teachers and parents can do that will improve those in uh, is improve the right word or just I allow them yeah, to develop. I think, I Tricky, think we, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I, I think the evidence is, I know that trauma is a really big topic at the moment. Mm. So I'm going to, I use the word adversity. I think the research yes. is more focused around that yeah. rather than, than trauma yeah. just to, um, mention that I think yeah so I don't think we can say strongly enough that that we have research evidence to say that you can improve executive function skills in this way but I think it's really important that children have the opportunities to develop these skills yes. I think that's probably the way that I phrase it and what are some of the things like so you mentioned in early years kind of sharing and I should say I've mentioned this to a couple of colleagues I've got a little boy he's, he's just he's two and a couple of months or whatever and I'm finding this like it's like the ultimate guide to parenting speaking to, to you and your colleagues here because I'm learning so much about some of the things I can do to, to help Isaac out he struggles with sharing he won't give me any mm -hmm. Weetabix or anything this morning so it was all kicking off but what are some of the things that if we've got teachers listening, teachers in perhaps early years in primary can be doing to help 
students develop these uh, uh, executive function skills? And then also, I'm thinking more kind of secondary. Would there be anything there that teachers could do? Well, so I think the role for teachers is not necessarily so much to think about I need to help children to develop these skills. I think probably mm. in the early years, yes. And I think yeah. early years, is teachers are very aware of that, that they're not just looking at academic skills, that all this broader set of skills is really important. Um, I think beyond that, um, for teachers, what to take away from this kind of research is not that they should be thinking, how can I help children develop their inhibition skills, but more generally an awareness that, you know, we there's lots and lots of evidence now that these executive function skills are related to children's uh, mathematical outcomes, uh, their learning, so not just you know, performance at a particular point of time, but also how they do in the future and how much they're able to learn over a particular period of time. Um, and so we know that they have a role to play. And I think for teachers, it's about thinking um, how the activities that they do might be challenging executive function skills and mm-hmm. thinking about managing those levels of executive function challenge. So to sort of unpick that a bit, if we if we kind of focus in a bit on maths um, and think about inhibition, for example. So when we talk about inhibition as being kind of um, ignoring distractions and resisting impulses. It's really easy to just sort of think about a classroom situation and think about distractions at that level. But what the research has shown, and what I think is much more interesting, is that we're also talking about kind of distractions from the information that we already know. So distractions from our prior learning. Mm. So to give an example, if we think about um, fractions, so we know that fractions and rational numbers generally, uh, you know, some children really struggle with this. And we see these characteristic errors, um, which in research we often call the, the natural number bias, where when children's knowledge of natural numbers interfere with their learning of fractions and decimals. So, for example, um, there's this classic effect um, where uh, children think a longer decimal is bigger than a shorter decimal. Yes. So 0.238 is bigger than 0.45. Yeah. Because 238 is, is bigger than 45. And we think that inhibition has a really important role to play here. Oh, that's interesting. In, in re- ignoring and resi- resisting this impulse to, to build on, on what children have already learnt in the kind of natural number world. So it's not just about distractions or interfering information from out there in the classroom. It's also from inside your own head about what you already know. This is this is fascinating. This. So I, I, I don't know if you know, I'm a bit obsessed with kind of mistakes and misconceptions mm-hmm. kids make. So my Diagnostic Questions website, I spend hours just looking for these seemingly, some you're going to use the word significant again here, seemingly significant errors that kids make mm-hmm. and try to un- unpick it. And you get you get a lot, of, as you can imagine, with, with um, decimals and fractions. Yeah. I've never thought to phrase it like that. I like that natural number bias. Yeah. That I think that could explain quite a few of Absolutely. these. You could, oh, you see Im- that, yeah. You could imagine a lot being in there. Now, I also, and I don't know if this is either completely irrelevant or the biggest cliche and the most obvious thing you've ever heard in your life, but... Um, I, I'm a big fan of 
the work of Kahneman and Tversky. I like reading about mm-hmm. system one and system mm-hmm, two mm-hmm. thinking and all this. And I often tell my students, sometimes you've got to avoid your first initial reaction to it and yeah. just slow that thinking down and, yeah. and see, is that a similar, is that, would that be That's the inhibition exactly, thing? Yeah, absolutely. So what you're, what you're asking children to do there is to exert their executive function skills, to not go with the instinctive response, to stop, to think. And, and by resisting that impulse, they give themselves time to think and then to overcome this kind of bias. So, yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's this is the fascinating. same effect. Yeah. That's really interesting. That. That's really interesting. And what about the um, the switching? Is, is that so? Could, could teachers help with that? So I think so that when we think about how that might um, come into play specifically with maths, I think it's whenever we're asking um, children to, to switch between um, sort of activities very close together so for example if you're solving a multi-step problem first you'll you know you've got your end goal you've got your overall Mm. goal but then you're going to have a series of sub goals that you need to achieve first and so being able to hold that sub goal in mind and then once you've achieved it now switch to the new sub goal and actually not get lost in that first bit that you're doing and being able to sort of continually switch from sub goal to sub goal um, so that's one example. And another example is, is thinking about, you know, all the time in maths, we're asking children to look at things from different perspectives. So a half and 0.5 and 50%, you know, the, there's, a, there's a commonality underneath here and we want children to be able to switch between these different perspectives. Or even just thinking about numbers, you know, an earlier example would be thinking about kind of cardinal value of numbers and ordinal value of numbers or thinking about number as as a position in an order versus number as a quantity of a set so these different ways of using numbers you know often we're asking children to to use a particular symbol and actually to think about it with different in different perspectives so this would be the switching there I see. Because so when you first said switching, immediately my head went towards kind of interleaving. So giving kids a task and question one, they're doing fractions. Then let's switch to now we're solving an equation and so on. But it's it, I'm getting the sense it's not that. It's more kind of different representations of the same thing. Would that be right? Yeah, I think it, it operates at all these levels. So I think that's one thing about executive function skills is that that they operate on the macro level. So it is still your executive function skills that, that you're exerting when you stop looking out the window and you pay attention to what the teacher's saying and you're, you're focusing. So that is this sort of macro level where it might be involved. But it's also this kind of much more micro level where we're thinking about processing information or focusing on these, these very smaller details. So I would also argue that actually switching topics or switching problem types and things like that is also going to be a challenge for your um, yes. cognitive flexibility so so that is you know it's a just you know at a different level but the same kind of skills that seem to be involved this is this is fascinating this camilla now correct me if i'm wrong here i think you mentioned earlier on that in young children they seem to be at similar levels, these these three executive function skills. So if you've got a high working memory capacity, you're also pretty good at the inhibition and pretty good at the, the switching. So is it true that when kids get older, they, they, they may diverge a bit? You may have somebody who's got a high working memory capacity, but pretty poor when it comes to the inhibition. Yeah, so the simplest way to think about it is in younger children, if we measure these three different um, aspects, the correlation between them will be much greater with younger children than it is um, 
with older children or adults where you're you know it's not necessarily that they'll be diverse but actually they could be there will be some um, children for whom, whom there are differences ah that's interesting so you also mentioned i think that there's kind of if we if we say high levels of these three mm-hmm. things is correlated with mathematical like high mathematical achievement yeah. is if we get some individuals for whom there is a low correlation between these three executive function skills, is it the is it is it the case that one of them seems to be more heavily correlated with more strongly correlated with high mathematical achievement than others? If that makes any sense at all? Yeah. So I think at the moment the research evidence is definitely strongest, and the effects seem to be strongest for working memory. Um, now that could partly be because we're not so good at measuring these other skills that are tasks mm. to measure. You know, whenever we see effects from research, it's tempting to, to, to conclude that it's the underlying construct that is yes. driving this. But we're, there are always methodological things. So there's much more research on working memory and there's more kind of um, established tasks, I guess. Um, and, and for, you know, inhibition is kind of the next, although, you know, there are actually different, I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's different forms of inhibition and some tasks tap into one or the other. And we're not entirely, you know, the relationship between these is not entirely clear. So I think, um, you know, if you were just going to think about one, then I would say working memory had, probably seems to have the biggest effect. But so I mentioned earlier that different people have kind of slightly different perspectives on this. Actually, one way of thinking about inhibition and, and, and cognitive flexibility is is that they are at play when we're doing, you know, in in our working memory as well. So um, some of the models of working memory break it down to these um, different stores. So a store for verbal information, a store yes. for spe- um, visuospatial information, and then a sort of executive control unit. So that is, you know, un- in some ways of thinking about it, that is your executive functions as yes. well. So. I mean, I think there's so, you know, all of this stuff is you know being debated and there's different theories and research sometimes suggests one or the other and so on. And I, you know, I don't think the level at which it's helpful for teachers to think about this is not worrying about these, these minor details. I think my kind of takeaway would be that we have these skills that controlling how we use our attention, what we're focusing on, how we're processing information, that um, that we any activity that we ask children to do is gonna involve these skills as well as involving the kind of mathematical ac- activities that we want children to do and to be aware of this. And so, you know, a child might be struggling with something mathematical for something that's not a mathematical reason yes. that's that's to do with these other skills that we, we're using. Um, and and that that we can manipulate the challenge on these other skills as well as and alongside the mathematical challenge. And so, you know, you might as a teacher want to be thinking about, well, you know, when do I want to decrease the executive challenge and when do I want to increase the executive challenge? Interesting. So if you know if you're if you're introducing a new idea, a new topic, or something like that, you might want to really decrease the mathematical challenge. So make sure that you know there's no distracting extra information that children need to ignore. That you're you're perhaps doing the same thing repeated over and over. That children aren't having to switch between activities. But then, as they get able to do that, 
you know, we, we can't, you know, that's not the real life situation. We want children to be able to do these, these mathematical activities in the face of executive challenge. So then you can think about ramping up the executive challenge. And that might come through things like varying the topic, varying the problem, or throwing in a bunch of extra information. So, you know, these word problems where you don't just give two quantities in the word problem mm. and all the child has to do is decide, mm. add or subtract, but actually you give a whole load more information. And so the first thing the child's got to do is work out actually which is the stuff that I need to do something with and which is the stuff that I can ignore. Um, and these kind of things can be used to, to change the challenge of a problem without necessarily making the maths harder. Yes. But make the challenge more. This is really interesting. Really interesting. Uh, could I just ask you one thing about working memory that's been kind of whizzing around in my mind for a while? And I think you might be the person to help me with this, Camilla. So you often hear, well, I'll give you a bit of background. When I first started reading educational research, which was after teaching for about 12 years, I was completely blind to it. And then, I, then I started reading it. I got a bit obsessed and I got very obsessed with working memory. And I thought this is this is the key to everything. Cognitive load theory, managing cognitive load and so on and so forth. But Whenever you read the research into how they kind of measure working memory capacity and some of these tasks, they seem so far removed from what we would do in a classroom for, for one very important reason. The kids are never, the, the participants are never allowed to write anything down. So it's, it's always like remember a string of numbers and then, as you said, reverse it. Whereas always, often, well, all the time, obviously, in maths, we say to kids, write down your working, show your steps and so on. So is there an argument that perhaps, I mean, I'm kind of partly playing devil's advocate. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I believe this myself, but is there an argument that working memory in maths isn't quite so important as it is in other subjects if the kids always write down the last thing that they've been thinking about? I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. That's an interesting question. I mean, I would argue that, that no, that the work, working memory is really important. And actually, you know, generally research on executive functions more broadly suggests that they're more important for maths than they are for other subjects. So it really does seem to be important. I think, you know, the fact that we get um, children, we encourage them to write things down or use external kind of manipulatives or any yeah. kind of memory aids is, is absolutely, you know, um, ideal you know this is really what we should be doing we want children to understand the limits of their working memory yes. so they know when they need to, to um, support this by writing something down and um, what we're doing in our working memory is not just not just solving the problem so so one of the things that's often overlooked I think is we have to hold our goal in working memory as well mm. So, we, you know, yes, we might get children to write that down. But actually, as I've said, you know, generally we don't just have one goal. We then have a series of sub goals. Yes. And, you know, that's going to be really important to, to, to use for working memory. Um, and even if we are writing things down, we're still using our working memory to, to get the bit that we're writing down. Even yes. when, you know, even when you're doing column arithmetic that you might think is purely a, like written um, strategy you're still using your working memory you've got to remember and you've got to remember to add in that carry and so on and all this kind of stuff it might be written there on the piece of paper yeah, but if you yeah. don't remember to to look to it and add it in so i i would say that um so i would say as a, to answer your question two parts i would say i think working memory is really important for maths and the fact that we use external aids doesn't diminish that on the other hand i would say this question about what we measure in research tasks 
um, for working memory and, ha and how working memory is needed in the classroom. I think there is a difference there. And I think that's a really genuine point. Um, you know, I think there's good reasons for this. So the, the way, the kinds of questions that we're sometimes trying to address with the research are often these nitty gritty questions that help us to understand, to develop the theory, to improve the theory, to mm. understand the mechanisms. So then we may want to then think about how that applies in the classroom. So there is often a good reason for making these uh, research tasks very kind of artificial because it allows us to pinpoint that. But we also want to you to look at how uh, children apply these skills in the classroom, yes. because just because a child does well in a very kind of um, abstract, pure task might not mean that children are able to then kind of deploy those skills in a classroom situation. And, there, you know, we have been looking at this. So I've sort of some recent work I've been doing. Actually, it's not recent at all. It's recent that we're writing it up. It's, it's ages old because I'm slept behind with everything. Um, some research with Lucy Craig at Nottingham. And we've been looking at um, executive function skills involved in learning. So we had the chance to um, measure children's executive function skills um, just before the teachers introduced a new topic in the classroom. So it was we, we were closely with teachers to kind of identify a topic where we thought the children might all be at roughly the same kind of level. And then we could measure executive function skills and then see how children learned the topic and then look to see whether their executive function skills were associated with how well they learned the topic. And what we did in this study is we didn't we use the kind of standard um, research measures. But we also use some different measures that were a little bit more kind of at that level that you're talking about, the behavioural mm. level or how children could like deploy their skills. So so we looked, we did some observations, we took measures of children's like classroom attention, you know, how much of the time were they working on task? And um, we had the, um, the teachers were really kind and filled in these. There are some checklists and sort of uh, measures of executive function skills that have like a teacher report version. So it was it asked a whole series of questions about children's behavior that teachers can answer. And that gives us a measure of kind of classroom executive function. Um, and we also had a task where children, which was a much more kind of um, real world kind of task where we gave children a set of instructions to look and see whether they were able to, to follow the instructions. And we found that, that both um, the, the kind of cognitive measures, the pure cognitive measures, and these kind of behavioural measures were related to, to children's maths outcomes, but in slightly different ways. So the cognitive pure measures were more related to kind of performance at a particular point in time, whereas these more behavioural measures um, were more related to learning over time. So I think there is a distinction. I think there is a relationship and, and you know, it is, I you know, probably the same underlying skills involved, but it's not the same to use it in a very abstract task situation as it is to use it in a kind of busy classroom environment. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, was there anything else about executive function, Camilla, that you want to make listeners aware of? Oh, let me think. Yeah, so I guess one thing is, well, a couple of things to say, first of all, I guess. One of them sort of adds to the complexity a bit. <laughs> so, so one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is thinking about all these different skills and how they come together. So, you know, we know 
one of the things that, that's really fascinated me about mathematical cognition research is how it, it has focused on so many different skills that we, we see are important for maths learning and, and maths achievement. And, and you know, executive functions are a really important part of that. Um, but most of the time, we're just looking at one of these at a time. And I think it must be so difficult for, um, you know, for your listeners and for people looking at research because they read one report that says, yeah. right, it's all about working memory, and then they read yes. something else. It's all about maths <laughs> anxiety, and they read something else, and it's all about conceptual understanding and, and so on. And it's like, you know, how do you put these together? Um, and I think the thing that, you know, that makes it even more complicated is I think the importance of those different skills might depend on the level of other skills. So to give you an example, um, thinking about, um, so one study we did that looked at, it was focusing actually on working memory, um, but we also looked at children's kind of um, procedural skills, so how well they could just carry out a procedure in a very abstract sense, um, and their kind of conceptual understanding. And what we found that the, the relationship between working memory and maths achievement varied according to the level of these different skills. And I think this makes sense. So, you know, and we would imagine a similar thing to, to go on with all these different kinds of skills, that if you have particular strengths in one area, it might be that something else is less important. So if you have really good conceptual understanding, you can find shortcut ways of solving things. Um, and it might not matter if your working memory is not so strong because you're not relying on it. Whereas a child that has to solve everything procedurally through the like longest route, then your working memory is really important because they're, they're actually really like having to use this. And we see this with like maths anxiety and working memory and all these different kinds of things. Um, and this is a massive challenge um, for kind of uh, for teachers looking at the research, but actually for researchers as well to un unpin, unpick this because you know, we can't just isolate one aspect and look at it by itself. We really need to look at everything. But if we try and look at everything, then, you know, it's just not practical. And we yes. won't then measure anything well enough. And then we're looking at everything far too superficially. And it's this balance between trying to bring together the different aspects versus looking at one in enough detail to get a really good understanding of it. This is the so, top, sorry, that's just like added, added an extra level of capacity <laughs> to all of this. And, and anything, anything else, Camilla, on executive function? Any other twists? Yeah, so I think one thing that does come in relevant here is, is some other research that um, uh, I've been involved in, particularly with um, Samantha Johnson at Leicester. Um, and this has been looking at um, mathematical learning and mathematical achievement in children who are born preterm. So ch mm. children who are born premature, so earlier than they, they should be. And, you know, there's been quite a lot of research now to show that um, uh, children who are born preterm are at risk of having um, some difficulties with uh, educational outcomes. So I think it's really important to say it's just a risk factor. So lots mm. of children who are born premature have no problems at all. They get on great at school. They thrive. So, you know, it's, it's certainly not a sort of diagnosis. However, there is certainly a lot of research now that um, children who are born uh, preterm and particularly children who are born very preterm, which would be a sort of um, eight weeks early um, or more, um, that they have higher level of uh, uh, SEN, 
difficulties, so they might need extra support and they have lower levels of achievement. Um, and it's been known for a while that um, uh, maths has been a particular area of difficulty. Mm -hmm. So of all the subjects, maths seems to be the one that's most um, affected here. And so I, because of this maths link, I got involved in um, some projects looking at this to try and unpin, unpick why this was. Why is it that, that preterm children um, might be having these difficulties? And so we, um, we did some research where we looked at uh, preterm children and we compared them to a classmate who um, had had exactly the same kind of educational input as them, but who had been born um, full term. And what was interesting is we found that it was the executive function skills that seemed to be the reason. So it wasn't the case that there was something, because there had been some suggestion that, that preteen children might be more at risk for dyscalculia or that they right. had some difficulties with like basic number processing. But what we were able to show in our research, and this has been replicated since, is that it's not that, and it's just that preterm children were more likely to have lower levels of executive function skills, so particular working memory and some visuospatial skills. And because maths is particularly yes. involving these skills, so it's, it's kind of maths was affected just because it's the subject that draws most strongly on these skills. And therefore, um, that's why preterm children um, might be having particular difficulties and that, um, you know, it's worth considering, you know, if, um, if children are struggling and, and it's known that they might have been born preterm, that it's worth considering, particularly here, that executive function skills might be something to look at to try and give support. That's interesting. And yeah, and it comes back to your, your point earlier on that if you know the root cause of the problem, if you know it is the executive function skills, then you can target that support to that as opposed to thinking it's they just struggle with maths. That's yeah, Whew, that is that is fascinating and important research. Um, well, Camilla, I, if it's all right with you, we might move on to your reflections, yes, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, so um, first question, what's an example of something important you've changed your mind about? Um, so I think there's a couple of things here, if I've got time for a couple of yeah, things. Yeah, go for it. So one, one kind of more research-based and one a bit more personal. So in terms of research, I think it's around um, uh, this idea of kind of basic numerical processing and, and the importance of, of um, what we people might have, I don't know if they'll have come across the term of the approximate number system or this oh, idea yes, that yes. we, you know, we represent, you know, um, before we know anything about numbers, we can represent the sort of quantity involved in a set. And there was um, a, some research about 15 years ago that was really strongly suggesting um, that this is a really important aspect for maths achievement and that actually these non-symbolic skills, so these um, skills to compare quantities where there's no numbers involved is a really important element and we should be supporting this and uh, people suggesting kind of training on um, these approximate number skills. And I think some of my early work, some of my postdoc work was looking at this and we did find there a relationship um, between some of these skills and um, maths um, achievement and maths outcomes and I think I've changed my mind on that because you know I don't I'm not saying that this has no role to play but I think the role it has to play if anything is much less and it and it's not simply the case that we have this intuitive understanding of quantities and then we just kind of map the numbers on there and it would be like good to go um, and I think actually it comes back to executive functions again because um 
what we found in some of our later research was that the, the tasks we were using to measure approximate number system um, had a really heavy load on inhibition. And so what we might have been measuring is inhibition as much as these other skills. And because we know inhibition is related to maths, that's why we were finding the relationship. So I don't, I don't think that explains all of the evidence, but I think a lot of the existing evidence for that um, might come down to these executive function skills. That's really interesting. So that's, that's, that's kind of my research one. And then my other one that's a bit more personal is to do with, um, actually, so I mentioned at the beginning, I had three kids. And actually just looking at those, my children and their, um, their experiences of learning maths and how they've got on at school and thinking about, you know, how different children are and, and how complex this whole thing is. So I guess this isn't a change my mind rather than broaden my mind. So, you know, my children have got the same parents, they've lived in the same house, they've had the same environment, they've gone to the same school. And yet, they've had such different experiences of learning maths, you know, from loving it and thriving with it and, and being drawn to certain ways of practicing. And then the next child has just a completely opposite situation and experience and much more anxiety and needing completely different kinds of input and support. And it just shows that, you know, this is so complicated, yes. right? You know, it's so complex. You know, we're never going to be able to reduce maths learning or understanding how to support children's maths to, to simple um, solutions. And, you know, anyone who's trying to sell you a silver bullet on how to improve <laughs> maths, just don't believe them because it is much more <laughs> complex. And children are very, very unpredictable in the way they, they learn and, and the outcomes they have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And final question for me, Camilla, uh, what areas do you think are most overlooked in mathematics education research and need a bit more attention? Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm going to answer this kind of to do with mathematical cognition to some extent mm. and the link between mathematical cognition and maths education. So it's not um, a topic so much as a way of doing research or a type of research. So I think what we're missing is you know, we talk a lot about this basic cognitive research. There's lots of interest in this now, and I think that's fantastic. And then we try and think about, and what does this mean for the classroom? And how do we mm. apply this for the classroom? And I think there's a gap that, that isn't just a gap in communication. It's not just a gap in language. It's a gap in research. And what we need to do is, is have teachers and researchers working together to actually do some research to find out how does this apply in the classroom. Yes. So for example, you know, researchers might be running, so I mentioned intervention studies at the end, mm. at the beginning. Researchers might be running intervention studies because they want to work out whether a certain aspect is causally related to maths mm. outcomes. So you might desert, develop some training around sort of number line use or something like that. And, and that's to see whether this is causally related to maths outcome. Now that intervention was developed to answer a causal question. So that intervention, so even if your results from that study are positive and you find a great strong causal effect and it's really beneficial, that doesn't mean that you pick up that intervention and you do it in a classroom. Yes. What you then need to do is some design research or some more collaborative research to work out. Now we know that that is a causal relationship. How can we use that in the classroom? Yes. What can we do? What kinds of activities that are much more kind of ecologically valid and much more appropriate? 
And it's not the case that we should have used those ones in the first place, because actually we needed to do that very pure research to establish that this was a causal factor. But once we've done it, it's not enough now to jump to the classroom and we need to do some more research to work out how do we actually do that? How do we make, make use of this new understanding to, to um, think of different activities? Yeah, really important message that, really important. Uh, well, Camilla, it's over to you now to, to bring things to an end with your big three. So what ah, three are the yes. websites, blog posts, yeah. books, whatever you want? So, yes, yeah, so I've got a few different ones. So the first one is, and um, I thought I'd pick up on the exec- executive function discussion that we had. And so if, if anyone's interested in finding out more about this, there's a really nice um, kind of website that's um, uh, done by the Centre on the Developing Child at Harvard University. And they've got a report called um, Building the Brain's Air Traffic Control System. And we, you know, people often use this air traffic controller as a, a metaphor for executive function skills. So this talks about what executive function skills are, actually, you know, more about the influences on the development and also how it relates to, to children's learning and achievement. So that would be, you know, if anyone wants to learn more about executive function, that's a really nice accessible kind of overview of, of the research on this area. Um, the second one links back to the, the preterm work that I mentioned earlier. So, um, you know, on the basis of the research that we've done there and, and also um, knowing that lots of um, children who, who were born preterm and were struggling through school, them and their families and their teachers felt there wasn't in, enough information for, you know, we did some surveys with um, teachers and, and most teachers or many teachers, I should say, have never heard about the research on preterm birth and the impact on education. And they, you know, they don't feel they have any um, uh, knowledge of this. So we put together, we worked um, with families and with teachers and educational psychologists, and we produced this resource, um, which you can find at pretermbirth.info. So it's a free e-resource. You can dip in and out of it. It's in different sections and it tells, it's written for um, educators and it tells about you know what is preterm birth what are the kind of cognitive impacts of it and what what might be the cognitive impacts of it what might be some of the, the risks for education and how teachers can support children um, who might have these difficulties um, so that would be a good website to look at if you want to know more about that and then the last one which is more of a general resource um, and I think I think you've probably been directed to the Deans for Impact reports previously. So the Deans for Impact Science of Learning that summarizes a whole lot of um, kind of cognitive research. Um, but there's actually there's also more recently since the first report there's there's now a Science of Early Learning report oh, wow. that focuses on the early years um, and it covers lots of things like executive function skills, but also looking more specifically on what does the research say about children learning to count and children learning about mathematical concepts. And it's a really nice way. I think the way they present research evidence is really nice because it's, it gives a good high level summary and some ideas about what this might mean in the classroom and also has references if anyone wants to kind of delve in a bit more. But it doesn't go into, you know, it's not a weighty tone that you need to work through. Um, so I'd say that is, is my number three. Wow, three absolutely excellent choices. I look forward to checking out myself there, Camilla. They're fantastic. Well, this has been yet yeah, yeah, another, it's, it's just, I'll tell you what, it's big hit after big hit speaking to you and your colleagues because I, I'm just learning so much uh, 
on all kinds of levels. And this has been fascinating. Executive function has been one of those things that I've, <laughs> I've had, at best, I've had a passing knowledge of, but I've never really dug deep into it. And I've always struggled between the relationship between that and working memory. But I think I've just about got my head around it now, thanks to you. So that's been absolutely fascinating. So Camilla, thanks so much for your time well, today. I've really enjoyed, really enjoyed it. Thanks. So there you have it. There was my conversation with the fantastic Camilla Gilmore. I really enjoyed that conversation, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you what, they've some patience with me, these uh, these Loughborough guests, and indeed all guests, you know, on my podcast. Whenever I don't fully grasp something, they're really patient and, and really good at just explaining things to me in, in nice, simple ways that, that I can understand. And that was certainly the case with executive function. Uh, long-time listeners may remember that in Research in Action Series 1, we had a couple of conversations that kind of skirted around uh, the concept of executive function. I had a really interesting one about working memory where executive function kind of played a minor role, but it was great to chat specifically about executive function. And I wouldn't say I've got my head around it at all, but I'm certainly starting to understand it a lot more thanks to Camilla's uh, fantastic way of explaining things. And I love this idea now that instead of just thinking in terms of working memory, I can think in terms of executive function with, with the additional concepts of inhibition and switching. I find those fascinating, you know, and I I'm going to really enjoy re-listening to uh, to those sections of the conversation time and time again. I think it's a really nice framework, not perhaps quite as limiting as, as working memory and, and as teachers, not just thinking, okay, let's think about the strain on students' working memory here, but let's think about the role inhibitions playing and let's think about the role switching plays. I think that's really, really interesting. And perhaps if um, certain listeners are cognitive load theory skeptics, which I know many people are, and certainly... I'm not kind of as <laughs> as find the theory as all-encompassing um, as, as I used to do. I think introducing these extra things, inhibition and switching, I, th I think really, really helps flesh that out a lot more and is something useful to think about when I'm thinking about task design. And that brings me to the only other thing that I wanted to say because I, I think we covered so much in that conversation. It's really interesting thinking about something like executive function and something that's very well established in my teaching practice, my planning practice, and that is uh, desirable difficulties. So desirable difficulties, of course, is all about making things more challenging for students, but in a useful way. So with interleaving, with spacing, and, and with testing effect, and so on and so forth. But what I was certainly getting from Camilla is that if we take executive function into account, perhaps it's worth attempting to reduce that executive function challenge, certainly for new topics initially, to both boost students' confidence, I think confidence, specific, uh, especially in mathematics, plays a huge role, but also to um, to make sure that they've successfully processed it initially. It, it's really interesting. I when, when I look back at my teaching, I, I made so many mistakes, right? But what, one, one kind of big mistake that I often talk about is that I didn't put as much emphasis into helping students retrieve things they once knew as I did into putting... As, as I did into putting effort into helping students understand something in the first place. So much of my planning time will be focused on thinking about teaching a new idea. What resources am I going to use? What visualizations, what explanations, what analogies and so on. And that was all fine. And, and hopefully more often than not, my students would get it in inverted commas in the moment. 
But then come a month later, two months later, six months later, worst case in some kind of high stakes test in the future, they'd forgotten it. And my teaching became a, a continual cycle of teach it, they get it, they forget it, and we teach it again. And it was only whenever I started really reading about Bjork's desirable difficulties that I understood the importance of certainly testing, uh, regularly uh, providing retrieval opportunities, uh, interleaving, uh, increasing the, you know, the method selection challenge for students, spacing and so on and so forth. But there's a danger that we go too far with that and, and everything becomes difficult. And Bjork's aware of this in his writings. He really emphasizes the desirable part. And if you listen to my conversation with uh, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork from years ago now, we have a big chat about this. And I think that if we put a load of emphasis on retrieval, which we should do, but students haven't kind of got it in the first place, then there's almost nothing to retrieve, if that makes sense. So you end up just teaching it again anyway. So thinking now about reducing this executive function challenge for, for, for new topics, keeping students focused, keeping the, the kind of, if you want, the cognitive load relatively um, low in that, and it's certainly the extraneous load relatively low so students can focus on the big idea. And then when they start to get it, when they've successfully processed it, and again, formative assessment strategies such as diagnostic questions can help us ascertain that, then we can start ramping up the desirable difficulties. So then we can, we can test that again the next lesson in a low stakes quiz then we can space it out and interleave it in with the next idea on our scheme of work and so on and so forth so i think those two ideas of executive function and desirable difficulties i think they work together pretty well um, actually and it's just yeah it's just nice how all this research kind of mixes in and, and can be really practical and, and have some real real solid implications i think anyway for for, for planning but um, all that remains to me to do is, is thank Camilla. Um, one of my favourite conversations that, I know I'm saying that all the time, but I genuinely mean it. I'm absolutely loving these conversations uh, for, from this Research in Action series. Uh, thank you to Colin Foster for helping me organise this. Uh, to podcastteams.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout the show. And to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in. Only two more of these, can you believe it? But I'll tell you what, they are crackers. We've got a wonderful one coming up uh, next week where we're going to be talking about using comparative judgment in maths. Um, and then the season finale of Research in Action with the fantastic Tom Franken, where it's all about mixed attainment. So I look forward to seeing you then. But for now, you take care and bye for now.